0: Hi, it's Mark Bittman and welcome to Food. As always, you can email us at food at markbittman.com. We will happily answer, we'd love to hear from you. Please do subscribe to this podcast and rate us highly wherever you get your podcasts. And please also consider subscribing to our near daily newsletter, The Bittman Project at bitmanproject.com, where you will find recipes, opinions, reporting, all kinds of interesting things about food. Okay, back in a minute. Hold
1: up.
0: These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. Aquatru has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation free countertop purifiers to higher capacity under sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U dot com, and enter code BITMAN at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code BITMAN, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. We have with us today the fascinating Chris Van Tullican, who has written a book called Ultra Processed People, The Science Behind Food That Isn't Food. And if you have listened to us or read our stuff, you already know what we're talking about. We're talking about the non-food that was formerly known as junk and now is correctly called ultra-processed food, something we talk about with Chris Chris is a part of a new, younger generation of scientists, journalists, researchers, academics who are talking about ultra-processed food as a plague and an epidemic and who are doing the research necessary to demonstrate that that's true. So Chris is great, wise, entertaining, fun in talking about this tragic circumstance we're all confronted with. He talks articulately about the effects ultra-processed food have on us all. Uh, This isn't a new topic for us, but this is definitely a new and um, enlightened approach. Very, very laser-focused. Really interesting. This is a fast-moving, wonderful conversation I'm sure you'll enjoy. Stay tuned. We've been dealing with ultra-processed foods for 100 years. Obviously, they've become more and more... Prevalent and um, kind of the same way that there's not a good word for progressive farming or farming the right way. I mean, it's called everything from sustainable to regenerative to agroecological and so on. We haven't really settled on a word for what you're calling, and I mostly now call ultra processed foods. That word's like five years old or maybe 10 from, I think, from Carlos in Brazil. So the phrase ultra processed
2: food. The first mention of it in a scientific paper was 2009, and that was Carlos Montero in Brazil. So it's now four, you know
0: 14-ish. I don't know the month of the birthday. And I would say becoming popularized over the last five or so. Yeah. Is it the word that's going to stick? Is it the word we're going to stay with? And, and will it become colloquial? Will it become part of the vernacular? I think, I hope... And I guess I do believe, if
2: I have any optimism, that 2023 will be the year that ultra-processed food became the way that we describe the food that's associated with diet-related disease, or or really the food that causes diet-related disease. I think that's what we all believe. And the reason for that is that it is the best, but still a flawed way of describing that category of food. So there is no perfect way of describing healthy food. A lot of it's contextual It's very hard to say of any single product. Like if you you said, "Is, is broccoli better than ice cream? Well, if you're on a desert island, you'd be much better off. You could live for a very long time on decent ice cream, but you would not live very long on just broccoli. It has no fat soluble vitamins. It's got almost no protein and very few calories. And yet broccoli as part of a dietary pattern or dietary patterns that generally include broccoli are associated with much longer life. So there's no perfect way of doing it. But the genius of ultra-processed food is it contains a bit of philosophy in the definition. So there's the technical, it's it's a very, very well-regarded definition. So part of your question is, uh, why can't we agree on this? In fact, the only people that don't agree really are people funded by the food industry. So UNICEF agree it's a good definition. The World Health Organization, great definition. My research group at UCL, my my colleagues at Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard, McGill, Sao Paulo, Marseille, every major independent research group in the world agrees this is a functional definition. And we also have a good understanding now that people find this useful. So when, when, if we forget the very long technical definition, if you say to people, it's basically food wrapped in plastic with stuff you don't have in your kitchen, which is a good working definition, people get it and they can shop using it. So I, I think the definition is here to stay. My pessimism would come from the fact that industry are violently going to resist this. They're going to resist it metafor- with violence as a metaphor, but I think also with actual
0: violence. I asked this in part because two years ago, I probably would have cast my vote for just calling it junk. But ultra-processed food is more descriptive, but, but the definition called, is the same. Uh, wh- but wh- well, one of the things I like
2: about the idea of ultra-processed food is it, it rests... A little bit of the judgment out of the descriptor. So junk food is stigmatizing. And that's a real problem when we're talking about food that is, is the food that necessarily but the only available affordable food for particularly in the states and, and in, in the United Kingdom. It's uh, people of color, disadvantaged communities, indigenous communities, marginalized populations have to eat this. It's the only stuff they can afford. So it, I'm, I, I think trying to find a way of discussing it that's a little bit more objective is nice. And then there's the important thing that a lot of the stuff we are pretty sure drives negative health outcomes isn't traditional junk food. So it's uh, all our supermarket bread, which might be whole grain, organic, seeded with, you know, stuff sprinkled on it. It's all our breakfast cereals, including the high fiber with added protein, you know, high energy, mm-hmm. vitamin D added, vitamin supplemented. So it's a good way of... of identifying that there's stuff that we've come to think of as healthy, energy bars, um, nutrient snacks, that stuff is is all wrapped up by ultra-processed food. And I think that's helpful, whereas junk will always be industrially fried chicken and burgers and frozen pizza. It's a a good point. Do you
0: think that's fair? I'm buying in. Yes, it's a good point. (laughs) I mean, I've been using UPFs, but I sort of use UPF and junk interchangeably and But it is more descriptive. You're right. And uh, yeah, people don't think of, um, maybe they do think of granola bars as junk, and they should, but they certainly can't not think of them as ultra-processed food. So that's, yeah, that's a good argument.
2: Because it's a formal definition, Carlos Montero's genius was to kind of create, he operationalized the definition of junk food for study so that we now have you know, dozens of really excellent prospective epidemiological studies. We have hundreds of laboratory studies on the additives that are put into the food. We have a clinical trial with more clinical trials to come. I'm running a clinical trial in the UK at UCL. Um, so I, I think it. this is an argument, right? If when we talk about food, it's a row, it's it's a fight. Everyone has an entrenched opinion about the food of their culture, which in your culture and my culture is ultra processed food. And so there is a, we're slighting people. We're slighting the the nostalgic foods of our childhood, the foods our parents fed us, even the foods we ate as children were the same. So it's nice to be able to bring scientific heft to the discussion. The, The thing I wanted to say earlier was that the important thing about the definition is it isn't just that about the mechanical and thermal and additive processing of the food. It also encompasses the long formal definition, this idea of profit, that it's food made to make money. And once you understand that baked into the definition is the idea that profit is an incentive, you start to understand how the food comes to be uh addictive and engineered to drive excess consumption so i i think it's really important to understand this is just a way of describing food that's made by companies owned by pension funds that that's the basic thing we're trying to describe here and there's very little surprise that the food made by a pension fund to generate financialized growth is somewhat different to the food made by someone who loves you and wants to wants to nourish you even if those two foods have the same name like a pizza or a lasagna or a burger here here well-put
3: it's true that it's hard to have th- these conversations without offending people because a lot of people do have personal connections to them. So that's tough. And I never thought about it that way before.
2: The food industry here are being very clever. In, in the UK, the book's been, uh, I'm just going to brag. About, I mean, I'm here to brag about my book, I guess. So it's been it, it, number one in our Sunday Times bestseller list, our, our, our New York Times equivalent, for, for eight weeks or so. And it was a New York Times bestseller a few weeks ago. And The food industry are doing a very clever job of using intermediate organizations. So they use charities, they use uh, think tanks that they fund very heavily to cast me as someone who wants to ban familiar, friendly childhood foods. In our country, it's fish fingers and baked beans. Uh, What would, what would your US equivalent of fish fingers and baked beans be? It would be, um, a kind of Aunt Jemima, pancake mix or some, some something sort of friendly that you kind of make at home or put in an oven. It's like
3: chicken nuggets. Yeah, yeah chicken right. nuggets and, and
2: fries. It would be that kind of stuff. But it's but almost chicken and nuggets and fries are so unhealthy. Whereas baked beans and fish fingers, I don't think they're that unhealthy. I feed them to my kids. They are ultra processed. I don't want to ban anything. But their their genius is that they're, they're developing this strategy where they're casting me as someone who hates poor people, who wants women back in the kitchen and who wants to deny people simple pleasures. Of course, none of which is true. I, I have no interest in the food people eat in terms of, I don't care what they eat. I really care that people who are disadvantaged have choice. And I really care that good, nourishing, delicious food is, is affordable and available to everyone. Beyond that, I'm quite libertarian. I, I really want everyone, if people want to buy nuggets, go for it. You know, my, my kids eat a lot of rubbish.
3: Yeah, same. I do have a question about your book, which is called Ultra Processed People, and it's a history of UPFs, just in its most basic description. I'm curious about how UPFs were developed. I'm curious about the history behind them. When did they really start to become popular? Why did it happen? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: So food that would now meet the definition of UPF was really developed in let's say the 19th century. So in the 18 late 1870s, saccharin was the first artificial sweetener. It was extracted from coal tar by a scientist at Johns Hopkins. And that was the first artificial molecule to enter the diet. And so everything with saccharin is, by definition, an ultra-processed food. So they've been around for a long time. The wars accelerated the processes. The first mass-consumed sort of complete UPF would be the margarines or the solid fats. And the initial logic was really straightforward – butter is colossally expensive. It spoils. You've got to feed a cow grass. So you need a field and a cow. You've got to milk the cow. You've got to churn the butter. Um, the shelf life isn't that great. Um, it's really expensive. If you can take a waste oil, so a cotton seed oil, which was um, the, the cotton gins were just on the banks of the Mississippi. They were throwing away the seeds. And once it was figured out how you could detoxify that oil and turn it solid using hydrogenation processes, that paved the way to cheap synthetic butter, which was a boon for chefs and, um, uh, you know, families everywhere. Um, and they could add some vitamins and it, you know, margarine is pretty good fake butter and it's not that terrible for you. So initially the, the goal was always to expand the market and, but, but the seeds of it, there, the really important thing is that from the, from the very get-go, ultra-processed food has been about repurposing waste. It's about taking stuff that is just garbage that the humans wouldn't typically eat and wrapping it up and repackaging it into something we will eat. So if you look at all the the whey powders that are added, or, or most of the edible seed oils, are, these are not seeds that we typically as part of our diet. Or we take soy protein, you know, for example. Soy is not something that's been a substantial part of the human diet. So it's always been about getting this stuff that we're, we're throwing away or not using much of or feeding to animals and repurposing it and adding value. So that's, that's a benign enough agenda. What happened in the 60s, 70s and 80s is um, this process of financialization. So this is a lot of my research now is economic research. So I work with biologists, but also with economists. And one of the things we're studying is the extent to which the corporations that make our food, and there aren't many of them, there's there's the ABCD who literally there are four companies who grow most of the stuff we eat. They grow the the animals and the, and the plants. And we, we eat primarily four animals and five plants, don't we? We eat pigs, chickens, cows and sheep, maybe. And then we eat rice, corn, soy, wheat, probably those four that are dominant. So we're eating eight different species primarily. And those are grown mainly by four companies. There are 15 or so big food companies that feed you and I every day, and they make about 70% of our calories. So it's a very small number of companies. And we can show using measures like the extent to which they do share buybacks, that these are highly financialized companies, that their only interest, not their primary interest, their only interest is shareholder value and dividend payments. And that's really important. In fact, the companies. Now are really trapped by their owners. So all these companies are owned by institutional investors, or the vast majority, and those institutional investors hold our three pension funds, and they we, they have legal obligations to deliver financial growth. And so the journey starts with a sort of benign intention to make fake but of fake cheap butter um, or synthetic butter, and it becomes about delivering financial growth. And in in a market where we already have enough food, and so that's the logic of how it becomes. Addictive. Um, and I think the evidence is very, very robust now that our food is extremely addictive.
3: But basically, you're saying that we went from making food that was easier for people to afford to killing them with that food. It started out as a good thing.
2: Once you have enough food, you've got to keep selling more. If you're obliged to have quarterly growth, which the companies all are. You've got to make food that people will eat to excess. I mean, even people on the lowest incomes in both our countries, two of the richest countries on earth have enough calories. In fact, the one of the paradoxes is, of course, it's low income families that have the greatest problems with excess weight who who live in the largest bodies. And so the issue is how to get people to eat more food. And so we, we now, so, so one of the, for the most part, my book gives, I don't think it gives anyone any advice, but there is an invitation to the reader, which says, don't stop eating this food. If you are someone who thinks that you live with an addiction to it, keep eating while you read, learn about the food, uh, find out what happened to me when I went on an 80% ultra processed diet, read your ingredients labels. And by the end of the book, I bet you, you will not be able to keep eating this food. And if you're middle class and you're lucky enough to have a decent income, you will probably." be unable to keep buying it. And and it's a very well-evident psychological technique used in the famous Alan Carr book about the easy way to quit smoking. That has loads and loads of studies done it on it. If you eat if you consume an addictive product while engaging with the information about it, about the companies and about what it does to you, you find it much easier to, to quit.
0: That's brilliant. You talk about addiction to UPFs and how that and how that's a, a prime cause of obesity, not overeating, but but overeating of UPFs. And can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the theory is
2: we're very sure that there's a clear consensus that you you only gain weight when you eat more calories than you burn. And in fact, it's very hard to change the number of calories you burn. Exercise doesn't massively affect your... Over the long term, it doesn't really affect the number of calories. So the weird thing is that in nature, there are no fat animals, none. Even, you know, whales do have a biologically high percentage of body fat. But in fact, probably, uh, well, I will speak for myself. I have the same percentage of body fat as most sea mammals. So 25 to 30% is very typical for a whale. And that is very normal for a human being. That would be below average in the United States, in fact. So humans have this unique problem. Out in nature, animals seem to have a mechanism whereby even when food is abundant, they will stop eating. And of course, historically, obesity rates have been extremely low in humans, even when food has been abundant. And in fact, obesity rates are very low in groups of people who don't eat much UPF. So we can go to different countries and look at middle class people. We can look at affluent people in the States and in the UK who don't eat much UPF and they don't gain weight, even though food is abundant. So the, the theory is, and this is backed up uh, quite well, is that UPF subverts your evolved internal mechanisms that tell you, hey, you've had enough, stop eating. And anyone who has, I mean... My favourite example is is this standard British lunch, which is a sandwich, um, uh, uh, a pack of crispy stuff of chips or popcorn and a fizzy soda. That's what we all eat for lunch. It's around 1,200 calories, depending on where you buy the sandwiches. And it should leave you feeling full. But every single person will finish every single last molecule in all of the packets and they'll drink the last drop of the drink and they will not feel full. So this is food that has been put through trials. And I spoke to loads of people in the food industry, and they described this process where the food is put to focus groups. So you start with sandwich A and sandwich B or box of cereal A and box of cereal B, and you feed it to a few dozen people. And one of the things that's measured is how much do people eat? If they eat more of sandwich A or cereal box A, that's the one that goes to market. And that process is done again the next year and the next year and the next year. And the way we think it works is ultra processed food is incredibly soft because of the physical processing. If you think of supermarket bread compared to real traditional bread, how soft it is. It's very soft. It's very energy dense. It's full of fat and sugar and it's dry to preserve the shelf life. And so you consume calories at a rate where your body can't release the hormones quick enough to say stop eating. And we've got a huge, we've got data going back to the 90s that soft energy dense food is both addictive and increases your calorific consumption. So basically... You know, you can go to any of the fast food restaurants and eat 1500 to 2000 calories in five, five to 10 minutes, long before your body should be able to say, Hey, I'm, I'm done now. And that's what gives rise to this weird feeling that we all have where, you know, we, we want to stop and yet our hand is moved as if by some invisible force to get the next item out of the packet and crunch it up. At least in my case, it is. I mean, I am, I'm not everyone has those genes, but I have. All the genes for obesity, I've had myself tested with colleagues at Cambridge. And um, so I experienced that that process.
0: Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's really scary. And that research, because for years, the theories about obesity were too many calories in general, or maybe it was too much saturated fat, or maybe it was the the whole sort of carb thing. There is no debate that it is too many
2: calories. The question that we need to ask is, are we eating foods where we feel full and we don't eat too many calories, which is real food, meat, vegetables, foods that are wet and chewy and substantial and satiating and full of nutrients? I mean, nutrient rich foods fill you up because you're satisfying your body's um, biological craving for nourishment. Um, If you eat low-nutrients foods that are soft and energy-dense, you just eat too too much of them. So the the question to me isn't it. It's never very interesting to me to go like, well, we just need to eat, need to eat fewer calories. That's obvious. It's it's like saying, well, the problem with the smoking epidemic is people just need to sm- smoke fewer cigarettes. Like just maybe just have one, or maybe don't inhale your cigarette. <laughs> Could we do that? It's it's crazy. Like it's it's because the food is is addictive and is engineered and is marketed to us, so we. The marketing is another part of ultra processing. You know, we have very, very good evidence that when we market junk food to particularly to kids, they eat more junk food. I mean, I mean, it's such it's such a banal point. And yet it is a point you need to sort of beat people over the head with because the food industry argue so hard that their burger ads do not make kids eat more burgers. They simply make them eat the burger in the ad. In fact, we know that if you have burgers in front of kids and you show them any food, they will eat more burgers. So we've just got we've got piles of data on this. You know, marketing is part of the ultra
0: processing. We'll be right back with me, Kate, and Chris Van Tollicken.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May
2: 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. Aquatru has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. Aquatru comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any Aquatru purifier. Just go to Aquatrue.com. that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code BITMAN, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Hi, folks. A word from our friends at Made In. Did you know that most of the dishes in Tom Calicchio's craft restaurant are made-in, made-in pots and pans? The braised short ribs? Made-in, made-in. The Rohan duck? Made-in, made-in. The Heritage pork chop? You got it. Made-In, Made-In. Which isn't surprising. Made-In has been supplying top chefs and restaurants with high-end cookware for years. For the simple reason that Made-In makes exactly what demanding chefs are looking for. Their carbon steel cookware, for example, combines the best of cast iron and stainless steel, gets super hot, and is rugged enough for grills or an open flame. Best of all, Made-In is sold online so their professional-grade cookware is far more affordable than other iron brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes on menus all around the world have in common. They're made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's MadeInCookware.com. Thanks. Hi folks, we have a new sponsor and an interesting one. We all take about 20,000 breaths a day and Americans spend about 90% of our time indoors. That indoor air that we breathe can be up to a hundred times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. And indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. So what's the solution? Introducing Air Doctor, the air purifier that filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so your lungs don't have to. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code Bitman. B-I-T-T-M-A-N, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to our listeners, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to airdoctorpro.com. That's A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code BITMAN. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
2: This is going to sound a little bit out there, but I really believe that the evidence shows this. We have very little more control over what we eat than the amount we drink. I, you know, if you think about your thirst all day, you just drink to thirst. No, no. I mean, increasingly we do kind of put numbers on all this stuff, but you know, historically humans just, we breathe oxygen in and we get enough oxygen. We, none of us try and over-consume oxygen. Similarly, water, we just drink water. Food, we have a homeostatic mechanism. We, if you eat normal things, you just feel full and your body, you know, animals don't have any instructions on packs. They have no idea of how much selenium they need, how much fiber, what fat they should chew. And animals figure all this out. They maintain perfect nutritional balance in the world. They get all their calcium, magnesium, vitamin C, vitamin D, um, essential fatty acids, essential amino acids. They do it without knowing anything about it. And there are some brilliant experiments I describe in the book done in the 1920s where an American pediatrician called Clara Davis adopted uh, children who were abandoned by their mothers. And she let them pick their own food. So she only gave them healthy food, but at each meal they had 12 little pots, and they had 34 different dishes in total. So they could have, um, there was salt and bone marrow and beef and uh, corn and rice. It was it was a really healthy, balanced diet. And the kids fed themselves with no instructions from nurses, just using their fists. And they not only did they all achieve perfect health, but a kid that turned up with rickets, this was the most powerful story. And this was all published in medical journals. She was a good scientist. A kid turns up with rickets with vitamin D deficiency, so rubbery, bendy bones. And every day, he would drink a whole glass of cod liver oil. He craved it. And this was available to all the kids. None of the others had it. And the day his rickets were treated, and they were measuring him with x-rays constantly, the day he no longer had rickets and his calcium and vitamin D levels were normal, he stopped drinking the cod liver oil, refused to drink it, and never drank it again. So we have internal mechanisms that guide us. Now, when we're only surrounded with entirely synthetic Concoctions of food with artificially added vitamins and minerals, which are very, very different from ones that are found in, a, in the proper biomatrix of food. When we're surrounded by that food, there's a, there's, a, there's a theory by a guy called Mark Shatska, who's a Canadian philosopher. Um, he wrote a book called The Dorito Effect. And his Idea, which is very persuasive, is when your food doesn't contain nutrition, your body consumes it to excess because you're in search of all these missing molecules that should be in your plants and your meat and your milk that you ought to be eating, but all you're eating is this very, very limited supply of extremely processed products.
3: Okay, so I have a question that's it's geared towards me, but it's I think I think it's <laughs> interesting anyway.
0: But of <laughs> course, you do. No, stop! I, <laughs>
3: I had food poisoning, I think, a few days ago. And... I'm sorry. When I felt like I was... saying thank you. It wasn't terrible. But when I finally felt like I was ready to eat, all I felt like I could eat was pastina with butter and cheese, which is, like, a childhood favorite, and... What's pastina? It's this teeny, teeny, pasta, teeny, tiny pastina. noodle. It's what they give to little kids in Italy as a comfort food. But it was just that or chicken nuggets. And I haven't had like a McDonald's chicken nugget or like a shitty chicken nugget since I was pregnant, I think, which was eight years ago. And I just, I generally don't really crave that stuff for a lot of reasons. But what is it about hangovers and recovering from illnesses and pregnancy, but that's sort of its own category, that makes us crave these kinds of foods.
2: I love this question. Okay. So there's a paradox in what I'm saying because I'm saying look humans we have this wonderful system where we can identify nutrients and then we consume them. So why do we crave this low nutrient food? Well, the answer is is long and I expand on it in the book. But basically the way we come to like food is we associate the nutritional reward we get from it, which is the fat and the sugar basically and a bit of protein with the specific taste of the food and that's why if you've ever had a food that makes you sick um you can never eat that food again because you link the nausea to the specific flavor profile whether it's an oyster or a you know some shellfish or whatever uh, you'll never be able to eat that again or alcohol is the other one people get drunk once on you know in my case it was gin and and i've never been a a gin fan since
3: gold for me
2: Oh my goodness!
3: As
0: an older person, I can tell you both that you will get over those abhorrences. You will <laughs> yeah, drink I mean, it gin is again. <laughs> you
2: can drink through the nausea, <laughs> if only Goldschläger available. Especially if you are British. <laughs> this is this is brought to you by Goldschläger, and uh, so uh, so your brain is associating tastes with this crude calorific nutritional reward. There's there's a lot more complexity, but um, so. When as children, we're brought up with these, uh, foods that are very specifically flavored. You know, chicken nuggets aren't just salty and, and sugary and fatty. They have a very, very well, uh, organized, uh, spice extract and flavor profile. They'd be, they'd be artificially flavored. And so that is what you link the reward to. Um, and so when you're pregnant, what exactly you start craving isn't entirely clear to anyone. There's an idea that when women eat, want weird foods like anchovies or kale or, um, there's a phenomenon of pica where pregnant women sometimes eat dirt or things that aren't food, um, that they are satisfying some nutritional need that, that we ha- we can't probably identify on a blood test, a particular micronutrient deficiency. But in terms of when you're ill and you want to recover, there's just a very complex dance going on in your head with your body saying well look i pr- probably the main requirement is some easy to digest calories and so the the pastina noodles would meet that um but what what is more interesting at a population level is if we feed children only very, very simp- simply flavored foods. I, If you eat a piece of broccoli or a you know, a traditional meal, it's very richly flavored and very complex because the food hasn't been processed. So all the, all the phytonutrients are in the plants, there are bitter molecules, sour ones, uh, there's more um, uh, flavor molecules in the meat and so on. Um, if you eat a chicken nugget, while there's a, a sort of specific barcode of flavors sprayed onto it by the manufacturer, it's not a very complex food. So children don't develop good associations between the flavor patterns of food and the nutrition they're getting from them. And there's some really interesting, there are loads of really interesting studies on animals, but particularly cows, where cows will consume to excess um, nutrient mixes that contain a small amount of the nutrient that they're deficient in, but then they'll overdose on other nutrients. So a lot of this work's been done in goats and cows, and it's clear that the body can go and seek specific nutrients, but when you're surrounded by this very low nutrient food, it may be the, the craving for it, uh, maybe because we've, we've linked an addiction to calories, but we're eating it in part to excess to try and get nutrients that are missing. Does that make sense? It does make sense.
0: Shifting gears just a little bit to some of the, I mean, maybe it's the financial stuff you were talking about before, but there may be some other surprises in here. So I'm just going to give you your lead. But what are the costs to us of ultra processed foods besides weight gain, besides our personal health? So we've got pretty good
2: data from several dozen prospective epidemiological studies. So these are these are studies that that follow people through time. So they're not randomized controlled clinical trials, which is the best evidence we have. We only have one of them. But the big population studies, these are the kind of studies that we use to prove that smoking caused lung cancer, because obviously we couldn't give people cigarettes and deprive people of cigarettes. So we've got a few dozen that clearly show that ultra-processed food is strongly associated with metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes, with inflammatory disease like Crohn's disease, with mental health problems like anxiety and depression, with all cancers, but especially breast and bowel cancer and liver cancer, with obesity and weight gain, with irritable bowel disease and reflux, those kind of more minor bowel problems, uh, dementia and early death from all causes, as well as heart attacks. Is that toxins. all? Uh, yeah, as well as really heart attacks. from all causes. So it's basically, it's the list of problems that smoking causes. And it shouldn't be surprising to us because the next question is going, well, how do all these different foods do it? And it's the case probably that there are some ultra processed foods that aren't as harmful as others. And some of them will harm you in specific ways. But we do have some evidence. So the weight gain, as I say, is about softness and energy density. Then there are the additives. Now, the additives aren't the main problem, but the additives are, the additives are more of a proxy that a food is ultra processed. But some of the additives we do increasingly worry about. So emulsifiers, which do occur in nature, but they're also a bit like soaps or detergent. They scrub out your gut. They thin the mucus lining of the gut and they damage the microbiome. And we've got quite a lot of good evidence about that. And the microbiome is the friendly bugs that live inside us. We depend on them as a sort of, metabolic engine and they they help us digest our food. And they also supply really important molecules that nourish our brain and our gut health and our immune system. So damaging the microbiome emulsifiers some of the complex uh, modified carbohydrates, carboxymethylcellulose, modified cornstarch, and the artificial sweeteners seem to also do that. Now, the artificial sweeteners are particularly odd because they damage the microbiome but they also seem to be having some paradoxical effects we don't understand. So in simple terms, the way I often explain them is if you put a sweet taste in the mouth and sugar never arrives, you go looking for the excess sugar or the the, the missing sugar rather. And that does seem to happen in some of the studies. But some of them also elevate your blood sugar, even though you're not eating any sugar at all. They're usually paired in soft drinks, which is the way we get most of them, with things like phosphoric acid, which, Kate, is particularly relevant for you because they leach minerals out of your bones. So they put um, women at greater risk of osteoporosis as well as dissolving your teeth. And then we have things like flavor enhancers, which drive excess consumption. There are then in the States, there's a universe of additives we don't really know about because the FDA has no functional regulation of additives. Now, I know that sounds like a kind of tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. But I called a number of people, including a professor at the um, food Food Law Policy Center at Harvard, who all confirmed that essentially the FDA doesn't even know the list of additives that are in U.S. food, let alone have any handle on regulating them. So we leave it to the companies to decide if the food is, 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 if an additive is safe. If in-house scientists at a company say that this food could be generally recognized as safe, it's determined to be grass, generally recognized as safe, and then it can be added to food. So that plus the addictive engineering All those factors put together seem to drive all these negative health outcomes. Obviously, I can talk about this all day. For me, the cancer stuff is particularly worrying, and it's very clearly linked to ultra-processed food, particularly liver cancer. All the blood from your gut drains to the liver, right? That's when you eat food. It's broken down in your gut. You digest it. The little molecules are then absorbed. The blood goes to your liver for processing. Now... With the inflammation from the emulsifiers, the artificial sweeteners, the low quality fats, the uh, refined carbohydrates, the, what you get is you get a leakage of bacteria into the liver. And we think that it's this that's setting up the cycle of inflammation that then ultimately leads to cancer. And we've got quite a lot of good data about this. So there's a lot of this is animal studies. It's early studies, but the population human data is really good. And the thing that it seems to me is if we tried to approve many of these emulsifiers or sweeteners as drugs, if we held them to the same standard as medical drugs and said, you know, how much harm do they do? Many of them would fail the animal testing stage. Mm. So they would never be approved as as drugs. And drugs drugs are actually doing good because they're treating a disease. So we should have a lower threshold for approving drugs um, than we do for additives to food. Brilliant. Brilliant.
3: Well, now I just have like a million questions, but... (laughs) If people
2: have questions, I'm on Twitter at at Dr. Chris VT. So people can send me questions. I'm always happy to answer.
3: Okay. We should talk a little bit about the potential remedies because we don't want to sort of end on a, a super negative note. But I just would like to know personally, and we've actually had a bunch of readers ask this, about which neutral oils people should be using to cook. Because things like canola... And grapeseed used to feel more acceptable than they are now. And now I think it's just everyone's kind of confused.
2: So, okay. So reasons for optimism. There's loads of things that people can do. If you have some resources, most people are able to shift to a lower UPF diet. It will take time and money for all of us. It will be more of a hassle. But I think when you start becoming someone who actually cooks rather than eating food out of a packet, and this is a journey I'm still on, you kind of join this big community of time-hassled humans who've been doing this for millions of years. And it's it's a really important part of being a human is cooking. We depend on cooking. So in terms of what an individual should do, If you are just eating a very high UPF diet and you've never thought about it, then getting hold of breakfast is really a useful thing to do. Most of us eat breakfast at home, so we can cook porridge. We can make our own pancakes and pour maple syrup on them. That's not ultra-processed. Um, We could cook bacon or eggs. We could bake our own bread. So breakfast is a good meal to get a hold of. And there are loads of different recipe books out there, and you can cook breakfast from all around the world. So then preparing your own lunch and making it small – And then dinner, you know, dinner is a set of compromises for all of us. It's we're hungry, we're tired, the time is short, light is fading, children need to be put to bed. So, getting a hold of breakfast is is the first thing I've tried to do personally. In terms of government policy, I think we're going to see a shift. I mean, if you look at the coverage in the in the newspapers, the US papers this year, we've seen huge pieces in the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, some of them about my book, some of them just sparked by a general enthusiasm for this because I think people are like, this is obvious. Great. Yes, of course, I can get on board with this. Why is my f- why is real food so expensive? We're going to look to Central America and South America where uh, governments are increasingly labeling this food. So they're not banning it. They're just putting a big label on it. It's usually a black hexagon saying this food has evidence linking it to disease. And there are lots of ways of doing that. So I think we could see really positive regulation. We're going to have to see subsidies. For me, the most important change, and this is the battle I'm in in the UK at the moment, is, you know, I work with Department of Health. I'm an advisor to the World Health Organization. The biggest problem is the conflicts of interest, the links that industry build between these giant food companies and the scientists, the online media doctors, the policy makers, the charities, the think tanks, everyone is funded by industry. So I, I turned down enormous amounts of money to, which is always a struggle. Like I just, you know, it's life changing amounts of money to just go and give a little talk, go and, go and have a chat. I was invited to go to Mexico and speak to some food industry people. They were going to pay me 20,000 pounds, fly me out first class. It was all going to be a brilliant junket, but. My very strong feeling and all my academic research now is about how when you take money, you become an extension of the food industry. So I hope that culture will change. That's the thing they will fight hardest on. The environment is also important. Like this, the food system that produces UPF that can only produce UPF is the second leading cause of carbon emissions. It is the leading global cause of loss of biodiversity. It's the leading cause of plastic pollution. I think there is... I don't know. I guess I'm an optimist. I think there is a groundswell of people feeling the planet is on fire. Our oceans are filled with plastic. There's no rainforest left. We, we, we have to start eating and behaving in a different way. And I think on both sides of the pond, there is increasing enthusiasm for regulating all the corporations that do this to us. Ultra processing isn't just food, right? ultra processing is all around us. It's the apps on our phone. They're also focus grouped. Lots of our music is ultra processed. The gambling uh, uh, apps and services uh, are ultra processed. Tobacco products are ultra processed. Uh, The alcohol industry. So we're surrounded by these addictive products that suck our lives away, that suck our money away, and are really about paying money to pension funds. So all of it, I I think people are going to, I think there is an appetite. I think people, you know, we we did ban smoking in a lot of places, or we we regulated smoking effectively. So, I'm an optimist. I think it will be quicker than cigarettes, and I think it will happen. Is that crazy? What I mean, what what you you're living in the states? Am I, am I talking out of my hat, or whatever the expression is?
0: I mean, I think it's already not quicker than cigarettes, but it depends when you date UPFs too. I'm already wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I date UPFs to, to mass-produced white bread, so uh, 120 years.
2: Well, no, let's say it's a big part of the diet. Everyone was eating UPFs in the States by the early 70s, mid-60s, early 70s. People were heavily smoking in more like the 10s and 20s. So you're right. It, we've been eating this. It's ta- Look, it's taken us 40 years to develop the definition. It's a much more complex problem Industry is more sophisticated, but I think we'll get there.
0: More hegemonist. I mean, the four companies you mentioned are eight companies, you know, four companies, eight kinds of food. It's all dominant in everything. Half of our agriculture is corn. And so, literally, half of our agriculture is corn and soybeans. The United States is planted with corn and soybeans over an area the size of Texas, which is the biggest state in the lower 48. Anyway. But I'm optimistic also. But that's maybe that's maybe we talk again in six months. It's a different conversation.
3: The question
2: about oils is really interesting. I mean, every oil you consume that isn't extra virgin cold pressed has been refined, bleached, deodorized, probably hydrogenated, and probably interesterified. So um, edible oil refineries look a lot like crude oil refineries. And they are very good at taking relatively toxic, inedible oils from things like mango kernels and cotton seeds and, um, you know, chia, um uh you know, cocoa seeds and things, and turning them into any viscosity of liquid, any clarity of liquid, all the way through to almost rock hard solids. So palm, palm in its natural state is this wonderful red, spicy, delicious tropical oil. It's amazing to cook with, but the time you're eating it in your chocolate spread, it's a uh, it's it's a white paste with nothing other than fat molecules. It's it's more or less sort of almost like paraffin. So agonizing about the fats is I think a discussion for ten years time. I personally do cook with like cold pressed oils because I'm I'm fancy and neurotic, I suppose, and I have enough money to buy them. <laughs> but if if you were just buying canola oil and Pouring it on your salad and making a salad dressing, you know, good for you. You're not if you if you're making a salad dressing with canola oil, you are you know you're already a light years ahead of buying the the pre mixed maltodextrin filled artificially sweetened salad dressing from the store. So th- there is a whole seed oil neurosis going on. I think it, it it will become relevant, but at the moment people are so far from just eating real food that I personally I, I think that's fine print. It's like going, what about unhomogenized whole milk versus semi-skimmed? Well, yes, I think personally the unhomogenized whole milk is better, and it's better if it's grass-fed. <laughs> grass-fed beef, you know, I like grass-fed beef, but if you're eating beef rather than eating it in some weird modified patty, then you're ahead. So don't – I wouldn't sweat all that stuff
3: so much. That's wonderful. Thank you. It's a great answer.
0: Yeah, we really do say many of the same things. It's good that It's it's very um, – <laughs> rewarding to hear
2: you say this stuff science is only interesting when it either turns our world upside down like relativity or it confirms everything we've basically always believed <laughs> and i think ultra processed food is yes. like oh yeah right my, my parents my grandparents were correct this is obviously <laughs> true
0: right we do have one more question which we ask everyone and you're gonna have a good answer to this i think which is what did you have for dinner last night Oh, OK. So this. Uh,
2: OK, Uh-oh. I'll be completely
1: honest.
2: Uh-oh. I got it. No, I got I got in really late and um there was because we've got all the junk out of the house and my my kids have been ill. And so I was in late from work. So I fried myself a piece of black pudding, which is um a sausage made from pig blood. And I had that um with some butter on some sourdough bread. It was it was a really kind of. And then I fried an egg as well. It was a very Sounds weird meal awesome. even for me like I just <laughs> anyway but it was non upF and uh, do you eat blood sausage is that even a thing it's quite sort of Scottish
0: we don't have a lot here but in Spain and the UK yeah. I it' was eat quite it when a I Spanish see it.
2: yeah it was a Spanish meal so I I um yeah that was that was it not UPF the bread was excellent quality it was a good blood sausage but yeah
0: not that's not a normal evening meal <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one though all right. Thanks, Chris. It's really been fun. And I think people are going to love this. And I can't wait to listen to this conversation again. Thank you so much. Well, hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Thanks very much to Chris for joining us today with his smarts and good humor and um, in-depth reporting. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Chris VT and on Facebook at Van Tulleken, that's V-A-N-T-U-L-L-E-K-E-N. And be sure to check out Chris's book, Ultra Processed People, The Science Behind Food That Isn't Food, out now. Thanks also to my co-host and producer, Kate Bittman, and to our engineer, Davis Lloyd. Thank you for listening. Please do subscribe to the podcast and to our newsletter, The Bittman Project, at bitmanproject.com. We will see you next week when we will have somebody incredible. Until then, be well. Bye.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.